Welcome to another episode of Thermochromia. You've got Cricket here, and we are back for our third episode, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. Thank you so much for sticking with me for this long, and I know it's been, you know, it's we're roughly two weeks between each episode. That seems to be kind of a good recording schedule, trying to keep everybody on, so I definitely appreciate you for um, sticking with me this long, and thank you for my loyal listeners. This is awesome. Uh, now, the first thing that I want to do um, at the beginning of this podcast is something that I should have done for the other two podcasts, but I want to make sure I do this on every single one of them. Uh, I want to give a disclaimer. I am not a medical professional, and the people that I interview very rarely are medical professionals. Any mental health advice that you hear on these episodes is going to be opinions based on the treatment that we ourselves have gotten. Um, so what we're doing is we're giving you, um, not expert opinions, but informed opinions about how mental health works. And one thing you have to understand about mental health is that it, the treatments don't work for everybody. Um, what works for me isn't going to work for somebody else. Um, what works for somebody else isn't going to work for me. Um, and, and that's okay. It's all about finding what works for you. So make sure that you are getting, um, you're being counseled by a doctor, you're being counseled by a medical health professional, we want to make sure that you're getting the right treatment for you. Um, The second thing that I want to um, caution you guys about, I do have trigger warnings on all of these episodes. Um, A lot of them deal with um, sometimes sexual abuse, uh, physical abuse, a lot of traumatic traumas and triggers that could potentially trigger somebody. And I want to caution you for that. We also deal with, since this specific podcast is centered around mental illnesses and the way that a a high control uh, religious upbringing has affected those mental issues, we are going to talk about religious trauma, uh, PTSD, things like that. So just um, just keep that in mind. Um, we're we're going to try to, before any of these segments, before we get into the really deep stuff, we're going to try to go ahead and give you a trigger warning to make sure. Um, but just go on and, and listen to the, the rest of these uh, episodes knowing that we could be discussing some very serious issues and uh, just to, you know, proceed accordingly. So this week, we have got a great guest. Um, Emery has come to talk to us about the way that uh, they were raised and um, kind of their, a little bit about their story. So let's get into it. Um, Emery, uh, go ahead, introduce yourself. Uh, give me your name, your pronouns, what you do, and your various brands of mental spiciness. Hey, I'm Emery. Um, I use he and they pronouns. I um, work at a vape shop. And so all that kind of stuff, vaping and the kinds of THC that are legal in my state and other things like that. Um, And then as far as mental spiciness, I have been diagnosed with autism, bipolar type one, um, complex PTSD, and we're kind of looking at a diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder at the moment. Okay. So you got you got some good stuff brewing there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm quite spicy. 
Now, are you, are you, and I, I can assume that since you're working on a diagnosis, you're currently being treated by a medical health professional. Are you currently on any medications? Yes, I am on Wellbutrin, Cymbalta, and uh, Seroquel for sleep. Now, I tried Seroquel, uh, but I'm bipolar too, so it affected me a little differently. Um, uh -huh. It turned me into an absolute zombie because um, they had me taking like, um, I think it was 150 milligrams in the morning and 150 milligrams in the evening, and I was just dead for like 15 hours a day. It was awful. And um, so I hope that Seroquel is working for you. I can tell you that in my case, it did not work for me. I'm I'm on a much lower dose. I'm only on 50 milligrams at night, and it's it's been working pretty well just to kind of slow my brain down enough that I can sleep because for years, my brain just goes too fast, too fast, too fast, and Wellbutrin made that worse. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I try to sleep, and it's like a thousand thoughts jumping off of each other, and they don't stop. And so um, I am... I was able to finally get my brain to slow down. It doesn't stop my brain because my brain never stops. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it slows it down enough that I can actually get some rest a few hours at least tonight. Oh, excellent. See, with, with mine, I'm on Boost Bar to kind of help the anxiety and to help the, uh, help the racing thoughts. Um, but the Boost Bar doesn't always um, help with everything. And so I have been, um, you know... <clears throat> self-medicating um, <laughs> with, with stuff that's actually legal in my state if you have a, a medical diagnosis. Um, so I've been self-medicating with that. And I found if I get a really good indica, man, I sleep like a baby and like a good baby that sleeps all the way through the night, not one of those babies that wakes up every two hours. Like I sleep like a really good baby. Yeah. Ohio has medical cards. I'm, I'm in Ohio and we have medical cards, but they're expensive. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that they have is extremely expensive. So a lot of people, plus there's like all kinds of restrictions on like who can get it. Like mm -hmm. if you work at certain jobs, you can't get it. And if you have a concealed carry license of all things, you can't get it. And like all kinds of stuff that, that prohibits you. So most people in Ohio, they come to the vape shops and they get Delta 8, Delta mm -hmm. 10, THCO, HHC, some of those things. And I found that HHC works really well for that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, for at least, you know, kind of slowing my brain down and without making me, like, super sleepy, so. Yeah. Now, and I'm in Arkansas. I don't know if I've actually uh, said that on the podcast uh, up to date, but I'm in Arkansas, and our medical cards are only, like, 50 bucks a year, which is super cheap, and um, don't appear to have as many restrictions. Um, there, It's a very limited scope of what you can be diagnosed with that will allow you to get a medical card, but once you have it, the stuff is actually, um, I, I think it's like the like the stuff, I like cartridges um, is what I use. And um, I, I think each one of them is somewhere between 40 and $50, depending on if you get them on sale. And uh, a good cartridge will last me a couple of months. So it's actually reasonably economical to smoke in my state, which is a good thing. That's fantastic, yeah. Because I've heard of everywhere. people paying, I've heard of people paying $200 for a cartridge here. Which is, is crazy because I have one gram cartridges at my store for 25 bucks and they work pretty much just as well. People tell me they work better. They don't give them anxiety like some of the strains do and things like that. So, Well, a lot of, a lot of the, the D8, the D10, um, it kind of trends more um, toward the indica side 
it kind of mm-hmm. has that effect of more of an indica, which is it kind of slows your body down and, and yeah. you just you just kind of want to melt into your couch. <laughs> yep. Yep. I tell people all the time, indica into couch. Yes. <laughs> you don't want to come out. <laughs> and we've got some good sativas. We've got some really good sativas, but yeah, it does tend to trend more indica. Now, Especially the eighth. I haven't had as good a luck with using sativas. I don't seem to. It, it no, it really helps my anxiety. Um, I can tell you that. Um, uh, but it doesn't. It doesn't give me that feeling of just like overall wellness that an indica yeah. does. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. Like sativa, I can still function on though. Like if I if I'm. On, if I needed to be able to do something during the day and just kind of take the edge off, I can use a good sativa. But um, but if I'm if I'm trying to do something where I'm really relaxed or anything else, then it's a, it's either a, a hybrid with an indica, um, uh, or with, 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 it's got a little bit more indica in it, or just a straight indica. Yeah. Yeah, which is awesome. So oh, um, yeah. let's uh let's dig into your story a little bit, Emery. Um. <laughs> Oh, the first question that I ask everybody, I haven't even asked you yet. So, um, so neurodivergent people tend to have issues with food. Mm-hmm. So what is one food that you either hated as a kid, but you eat now, or that you can absolutely not eat because of your te- because of a texture issue? So peas, I absolutely cannot do peas in any form. I've tried like mushy peas like from England I've tried like regular canned frozen whatever even in stuff I cannot do the texture of peas oh wow it's not the taste I don't I like the taste but I cannot do something about that slimy texture of it and okra is the other one I cannot do okra now okra if it's cooked right is not slimy but you then really I guess I've never had it made right. You really got to know how to cook it, and it is so easy to mess up. Oh, my gosh. It's so easy to mess up. But, I, like, I was raised in the South, and if you didn't know how to cook okra, there's something wrong with you. You know what I mean? Like, you had to, <laughs> <laughs> you, re, you really had to you, – you, you'd make some people mad if you didn't cook okra right. Um, but, yeah, if, if, you, if you get okra that's been properly um, deep fried, it's not going to be slimy at all. That's good to know. I guess, I mean, I've lived in Ohio most of my life, so I wouldn't have any real access to good okra, I guess, but I've never had good okra, apparently, because every okra I've ever had has had that weird, slimy texture that I cannot handle. It's so easy to mess up, though. Like, if you if you, if you you cook it even just a little bit wrong, it's going to mess it up. But if you ever get a chance to get down to Louisiana and get to a good Cajun kitchen, guaranteed... Those Cajuns know what they're doing with okra. (laughs) (laughs) I will keep that in mind. (laughs) All right, so we've established that you don't like okra and you don't like peas. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you were raised. Um, Were your parents supportive? Were they strict, authoritarian? You know, just like tell me a little bit about your, your early childhood. So I grew up in a house that... I, I hesitate to say my parents were abusive because it was more my grandparents that were abusive. Mm-hmm. But my parents, my mom was always so afraid of displeasing her dad 
that if her dad suggested something, they did it. To the point of, like, at my grandparents' house, they had a lot of property. They have a, a fairly large apple orchard. And they used to send me, it was a good, it's a good quarter mile from the house. They used to send me out to sit on this bench if I cried or made people mad or, you know, any number of things. And as a kid, it didn't like bother me so much. I mean, I would be stuck out there for hours before they would come back. But as a kid, it was just what I, what happened. But looking at it now as an adult, I think about how scary that is because there was a creek closer to this bench than the house. Mm-hmm. At two, three, four years old, I'd been playing in that creek my whole life. What if I decided to go play by myself in a creek, you know, or any number of other things? Because I wasn't being supervised as I was sitting out there. Oh, wow. You know, what if, what if somebody was hunting in those woods and a stray bullet came out or, you know, any number of other things. So there were a lot of those sorts of things, a lot of times where, I would be sent out to pick a switch and and hit until, you know, my legs were bleeding or other things like that. Um, Being served the same dish of sloppy joes for four days in a row because I wouldn't eat it. And that is is one, I, I I don't mean to break into your story. That is one thing that as much trauma as my parents inflicted upon me, I respect the hell out of my mother uh, for the fact that she never forced me to eat something I didn't like. That was one thing that that I always remember as a kid. Um, She would make, she was a stay-at-home mom, so she like was real focused on, well, we've got to make sure we have dinner on the table at six o'clock and dad's got to be there and everybody's going to eat together as a family. And I would not eat anything but peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And she would make a full meal for everybody else and then allow me to eat what I would eat. And I I have been listening to these stories like your story and some of the other stories of of people that have been on the podcast. And I just got to say, I'm lucky. And I I wish everybody had had that, at least that small part of my childhood, um, you know, because you, you grow up with such a such a terrible relationship with food when you're forced to eat like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely affected me my entire life. Um, but. And, and uh, again, if, in case you hadn't figured it out this far along, uh, trigger warning for um, eating disorders and things like that. Um, but yeah. Okay, go ahead. I, did, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, we're, we're, no, you're good. Yeah. You're good. Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely affected me my whole life. I've been, I, I struggled through most of my early adulthood with issues with not eating or eating too much. Um, my weight has fluctuated up and down from 90 pounds as a 23 year old to almost 400 pounds in my thirties. And now I'm down finally to a roughly normal weight at 40 years old and fighting to, to keep myself eating, to keep it there. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is what it is, I guess. But now would you describe your parents as strict or authoritarian, um, abusive? Like how would you, how would you kind of quantify the way that you were raised? Definitely authoritarian. Okay. Like I said, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say abusive, but there was definitely abuse in the household. Mm -hmm. 
Now, um, at what point did you realize you have um, mental issues or, or mental illnesses or, or mental spiciness? Um, at, at what point in your life did you realize you had these things that were going on? Um, so the first time I remember what I would now describe as depression would have been in like kindergarten or first grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember there being like days where I had trouble getting out of bed at that young of an age. And I had, I had fairly recently at that point witnessed my first like super huge traumatic event. My dad was riding a bicycle with my little brother in a child seat on the back and they were hit by a car. Oh my gosh. Um, and my dad was okay. He had some bone bruises and stuff, but my brother spent almost two weeks in the hospital with a skull fracture. And so it was, it was shortly after that, that I started really feeling like depression and stuff. Um, in second grade, I was diagnosed with ADHD, which, because people who are, you know, identified female at birth don't get an autism diagnosis back then. Because mm-hmm. they barely it, get it, one now. Right. Well, back then it was actually in the in the diagnostic criteria that it had to either be a boy or they had to have severe symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, getting a diagnosis back then was nearly impossible if you were a less than if you were if you were anything that wasn't like very severely affected i hate using like functioning labels but i don't know how to i i, I know i know what you mean and i think our i think our listeners kind of know what you mean we're trying not to use like ableist terms or um you know anything that could be uh viewed as um making the label the person um but i i, I know what you mean you you had to be at a point that you couldn't live your life, yeah, at all. You you couldn't you couldn't function in your daily life, right, right. So yeah, so back then, you know, it was even even harder than it is now. Mm-hmm. Now it's still difficult. I wasn't diagnosed with autism until my youngest son was, mm-hmm. and at that point, the psychiatrist is like you need to to go see these people. And he gave me a number of people out of Pittsburgh. I actually had to travel like two and a half miles to, to or two and a half hours, not two and a half miles. That would be weird to even <laughs> complain about. Um, two and a half hours to, to see somebody who was even willing to talk to adults with suspected autism. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so... Now, I, I, I wasn't actually di- diagnosed, I wasn't diagnosed with autism, but with ADHD um, until I was 40 years old. And it was the craziest thing in the world because I was able to look back over my life and go, oh my gosh, that totally makes sense. Why I would, right. why that would right. affect me in that way. It's because I have a diagnosis now and that makes sense. Yeah. It's nice being able yeah. to, sometimes, I, I, I don't, I'm not a big believer in labeling things because, you know, you can tend to fall into that label and get lost in it, but, man, sometimes having a label for something just really just opens your eyes to everything. It's nice. Yeah, to, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's nice to be able to categorize stuff and, and say, okay, this is, this, this explains this other thing. Um, now, um, were you diagnosed as an as a child or as an adult with um, 
I, I know you said uh, you were not diagnosed until later on uh, with autism and ADHD. Um, how about uh, the other diagnoses that you have? Uh, was that as a child or as an adult? I, both of them were as adults. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar about three years ago now. I spent a couple of weeks in a hospital and they're like, well, you know what? You had ADHD as a kid and in almost everyone, it turns into bipolar. And I think that that's why the medications haven't been working for you because they've been treating the wrong thing Mm -hmm. and, you know, going through symptoms, it made sense. And so they started me on the Wellbutrin then, and it's been working really well for me since. So it's 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 also it's good that you found something that worked that quickly as well because I know a lot of people in that in that situation you pretty much have to throw medication at it until something works, um, and that 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 was that was awesome that they were able to find something that worked for you that quickly. Um, well, I had been on lots of different medications prior to that, and nothing had worked. Everything had just made me more and more depressed, more and more suicidal, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, and. Finally, I checked myself in because I was like, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And once I did, I had a doctor that he said, you know, these things really work for people who've been in your situation. Let's try it. And we tried it and it worked. So awesome. finally, just having a doctor that understood it mm-hmm. made all the difference. Well, and, and see, that that's something that you almost have to get lucky with um, because, as you said, ADHD can turn into bipolar ADHD can be mistaken for bipolar and vice versa, and the medications don't work the same. Um, right. If you've got somebody, for example, with bipolar 2, like, like what I've got, um, a lot of times they will get diagnosed with depression. And in a lot of cases, when you treat a bipolar person for depression, those drugs make the bipolar worse. And you have to get on a certain type of mood stabilizer and a certain type of uh, mood elevator for it to actually start working on your bipolar. And I was very lucky that I had a therapist that recognized that I was not depressed, that I was, in fact, bipolar. And it looks like you had a doctor in in your situation that kind of was able to do the same thing. And, uh, gosh, you know, I would say blessed. I don't believe in deities, but, you know, you were as lucky as you can get. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, let's see. So you have been in a treatment facility. Tell me a little bit about that. It was actually a really good experience. I know a lot of people have really bad experiences with it, but I did not. I I, I was able to sort out a lot of things in my life that needed sorted out while I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, my... So I, I did two stays, each about a week and a half total, um, but only separated out by a couple of weeks because as soon as I went to the people they referred me to after I left, they tried to change my meds and didn't work well for me, and I ended up back in there until they could put the, me back on the meds I was on and refer me to somebody else who would actually listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and during my second stay, my uh, second husband left me. Um and, you know, it had been coming for a while, mm-hmm. but getting that, that information while I was in there was actually really helpful for me to be able to process it without the world around me kind of closing in. And, you know, I've got all these responsibilities with life and I've got to figure everything out right now. I was able to just process that news. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh there was there was so much they were accepting of who I was and willing to um accept the fact that you know I'm trans and you know these this is the name I'm going by and this is what I want you to call me and these are the pronouns I want you to use and they were the first people in my life who were really accepting of that which is strange because my second husband isn't is a trans man too and at the time he wasn't accepting of of that from me it's gotten better for him over the last few years Mm -hmm. um but you know the fact that I had walked through his entire transition with him and then I come out and he's like oh yeah you're just doing this for attention I'm not doing that Mm -hmm. and I'm like what (laughs) you know um but um yeah so that was it was a good a good opportunity for me I got to spend time reading and coloring and you know being with other people and doing art therapy and being with people who understood and got the whole mental illness side of things. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a good experience for me. That's good. That's excellent. And, and I want people um, to understand that getting into treatment can and should be a good experience. Um, that's, that's the whole point of getting you into treatment is uh, so that you can come out better on the other side, not traumatized even more by the system. Um, now, just as a child, um, did you feel like an outsider or did you have a good support system? I know you said your parents were very authoritarian. Um, what did your support system look like when you were a kid? I didn't really have one. You know, I spent a good portion of my school day wishing I was at home and a good portion of the time I was at home wishing I was back at school. Mm -hmm. Um, because I didn't really have friends. I was bullied pretty severely. Um, by both teachers and students at my school. Um, my parents were extremely authoritarian and borderlining on abusive. And so I would, I would cry wishing I was back at school until I got back to school. And then I was wishing I was at home and then back and forth because I didn't see anybody outside of the few people at my school and my family. So yeah, I didn't have a support system growing up. Were your teachers aware of any um, any issues in your life that they were willing to help you with, or was this just kind of a situation of a kid that fell through the cracks? Uh, for the most part, I kind of fell through the cracks. I had one teacher who really, really wanted to help me in the sixth grade, mm-hmm. and she tried. She tried her best. Um, but with the system the way it is and everything, there was just really nothing that she could do. Mm-hmm. You know, she called children's services on my parents on three different occasions. That's our state's version of uh, CPS. Mm-hmm. Um, she called them on three different occasions and they would come out and they would look at the house and they would talk to my parents for a few minutes and then they would leave. Mm-hmm. And it was just, It was just a situation where I don't think there was much of anything anybody could do. Mm-hmm. So, um, what's your support system look like now? Um, I I have a really fantastic support system now. I have built my own family. You know, I have a niece and a nephew and an adopted sister who absolutely adores me. I've got big brothers that are there to protect me when I need it. I have 
um, I'm, I'm a member of Narcotics Anonymous and I have a good support system through there. You know, my work, you know, a lot of jobs say, oh, we're like family. And I didn't believe that that was actually the case in any of them until I ended up working in one of those places that feels like family. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went to my district manager with some concerns, some of them legitimate, some of them not. Some of them were just, I'm really tired and need a break. And she took them seriously and she made changes and she checked in with me repeatedly to make sure I was doing better and I was okay and got me the time off I needed as quickly as she could. So, I mean, it's just, I I was off work today and ended up in making five trips to three different ones of our stores and I'm not at all upset about it. Oh, that's kind good. of deal. Yeah. So. It's awesome when you finally find a place where you, where you kind of fit. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, as far as, um, as far as the way you were raised, um, I want to go into, uh, you said your parents were very authoritarian. Um, the way I understand, uh, as you and I, uh, you and I have talked before, um, the way I understand it, you were raised in kind of a high control situation. Um, oh, absolutely. Now, were you raised in a high control religion or was it just your family that was high control? It was real, the religion. Okay. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, how did it affect your life? Um, as you were growing up, how have you dealt with that sort of thing? Um, so growing up, I was in a very small independent Baptist church. Um, and they were extremely strict with the way that, that they allowed things to go. You know, it was chick tracks and, um now for anybody that doesn't know what a chick track is tell me what that is it's a little cartoon book that tells about jesus but they don't always do it in that way it's a lot of like we're gonna scare you to god kind of things um the one that that i remember most now was like an anti-dungeons and dragons one Mm -hmm. um they actually made a movie out of that one and it's very interesting um, because Jack Chick actually signed off on it, thinking it was going to be like a serious movie. And it's a very good adaptation of it, but it was shown at um, Gen Con one year. So it's it's just become a bit of a funny cult classic kind of thing. But it was like talking about how these people like actually became wizards and tried to kill people and all of this before they were killed. And that's what's going to happen to you if you play Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm like... Even as a kid, I was like, oh, I don't think that's how that works. No. But, <laughs> I mean, some days I wish it worked like that. Yeah, no kidding. But, yeah, so there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, like, this is going to be the only people that you are surrounded with kind of deal. Um, you know, th- we were at church so- twice on Sundays and then there again on Wednesday night, and then there again on uh, Thursday to clean the church, and then we went soul winning on Saturday afternoons, and, you know, this is going to take up every minute of your time, no matter what kind of deal. Um, They would constantly preach against various forms of media. Um, Pokemon was a big one. He was very adamant that 
you know, Pokemon was was Pocket Demons, mm-hmm. and Captain Planet was another big one because you're worshiping the creation and not the creator. And um, baseball, they preached against baseball at one point. And what um, on earth could you find wrong with baseball? It is American it was, sport after all. It exactly. It was a false a false god that people were worshiping instead of coming to church. My pastor actually the first year that our local team was in the World Series, like the first year in like I don't know, a hundred years or something ridiculous, he planned a revival service every day of that week. Oh my god. Um and so yeah, it was it was constantly preaching against all of these various media things. Um, Disney was a pedophile because there was, you know, male genitalia in the um, background of all the movies. And I mean, Care Bears and My Little Pony, and I could go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a lot of training people who were identified female to raise a home and and raise a family and we were supposed to homeschool and we were supposed to do this and that and they did cooking classes and like just really training people up to actually I think that's what the class was called train it to train a to train a woman up or something Mm -hmm. um and like there was just so much of this stuff so much of this indoctrination but then when I was 17 my parents actually sent me away for a year and that's where things got really bad Mm -hmm. um it was kind of a conversion camp style thing um and I was like stuck in closets for days at a time and not fed and you know they use control and stuff as a food as, as a control mechanism in these things and you didn't do exactly what they wanted and you didn't get to eat that day or, you know, all of these things. So there was a lot of that. I spent the better part of my senior year of high school actually there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of how it, it affected me as a kid. Now, um, how did it affect your treatment um, for your uh, various diagnoses? Um, because as you grow up in these high-control religions and these high-control families, um, sometimes that will affect whether or not you get treatment or whether or not you're allowed to get treatment. Um, so how did how you were raised, how did that affect you as you got into therapy and started figuring out more things about yourself? Well, it's only been really this year that I've really found a therapist I can I can really click with. And he's also a survivor of a high-control religious group. So he understands it a lot better than most other people do, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that works out, works out really well. Um, and, but it, what, before that, you know, I would kind of, start telling him about a lot of these things and I had multiple therapists fire me for being too complicated um I had several others who would like suddenly not have appointments available after I had opened up and shared a lot of this there were several that I just didn't feel comfortable with after the first few visits 
So it took me a long time to find a therapist that was both comfortable with the subject matter and that I was comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But you have one now. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Excuse me. Now, did your religion dictate how you were treated um, as a kid as far as um, getting your diagnoses and and uh, getting treatment for those those various issues? Oh, absolutely. I didn't I wasn't medicated as a child um, because drugs are bad Mm -hmm. Um, because the pastor said no kind of deal. And um, I also didn't get therapy as a kid. The only real stuff I got was some accommodations in school. I got extended time for tests. I was sent to a tutor's office for 45 minutes a day um, and a few other kinds of accommodations, uh, preferential seating, things like that. Mm -hmm. So that was really the only thing it, it made a difference in my life with. Um, now, are you still affiliated with that religion that you were raised in? No. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that the reason is <laughs> because it was so high control and because it didn't allow you to live your life the way you needed to live it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was there until I was 28, and then I left my first husband, who was extremely abusive. And when I left, I was told I could go back or I could lose my family and all of the people that I had in the church and everything else. And at that point I couldn't imagine going back. So I walked away. And that was honestly probably the most healthy thing that you could possibly do. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, how, excuse me. How does your upbringing affect your neurodivergence? Um, do you find that, you have intrusive thoughts based on uh, your high control religion that are spilling over into your neurodivergence. How how has that affected you? So, I I have gaps in my memory, and I often have to like ask my dad or ask somebody else, you know, did this happen and when, you know, because I'll I'll have memories and I can't quite place them. So that's that's frustrating for me um and also like as I'm doing things that that I enjoy that would not have been allowed in the church um for example I really really love old wrestling like old WWE wrestling and yes but I I've I've been watching like the back catalog lately um, I'm up through about 2009, but like, I'm hearing things that people are saying and I'm going, oh, I can see why my parents wouldn't let me watch that. Oh, you know, there's a problem there, you know? And then I realize I don't have to see everything through the lens of everyone's trying to be a false religion anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like somebody calling himself the King of Kings doesn't need to trigger me like that, you know, or, you know, the... The other things that, like, like I can see this and think, you know, I know my, I, we used to, I used to watch WWE as a, like, a little kid, 
But then in like the late 90s, early 2000s, when the NWO became a thing, we weren't allowed to watch it anymore. Yeah, because the NWO is evil and antichrist and... Right. So that was the point where we were stopped. And now I'm past that point and I'm going, "Hmm." they got even more bold after that, you know. (laughs) And it's, it's interesting for me, but I also see all of these things because... Yep, that wouldn't have been allowed. Yep, that would have been that. That would have definitely gotten it turned off. Oh, yep, there's that. So that's that's kind of a a big thing for me right now is I'm like having to like stop myself from being triggered by these things. Mm-hmm. And they're stupid. They're all stupid. They're not. I mean, not stupid, but like they're all ridiculous kind of things that shouldn't bother me. But like Triple H calling himself the King of Kings somehow set my brain down that path, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's interesting, though, just these little things that you're told as a kid, it, it turns into something huge in your brain. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the indoctrination that you had when you were a kid, it, it's really hard to break out of that. For sure. Now, um, you said you were not medicated at all, Um how was how did the religion dictate how they did treat you? Um, so my pastor was of the belief that ADHD was caused by a lack of discipline. And so there were constantly attempts to discipline me out of it, you know, and so like I said before, you know, there were times where they would ha- send me outside to pick my own stick up off the tree mm-hmm. and bring it in. If you didn't pick up big enough one, they went back out, they got it, and you got swatted with both of them. Um, and they would, like, switch my legs until my legs would bleed. I had belts used on me fairly regular. We had a paddle with holes in it that they used fairly regularly. Washing my mouth out with soap. Um, like I said before, forcing me to stare at the same sloppy Joe for four days until one of us gave up. It wasn't me. I didn't give up. Um, eventually she just stopped serving it. Yeah. But, you know, so it's like, it's like they, they thought that this was a a sin or a character flaw on my part and that they could fix it by making me pray hard enough, read the Bible hard enough, beat me enough, and then it would get better. And it never did. Do you, you said you do have gaps in your memory. Um, is it gaps about everything in your life? Like, just for example, me um, having ADHD, it's hard for me to form a timeline in my head. And I tend to have bursts of memory with large gaps in between um do you find that you have something similar or how do these gaps in your memory actually work so i I do have like bursts and gaps but i also have very specific memories that i don't have until i do until i i somehow unlock that memory either there's a lot of times where you know i'll just be like writing stuff or talking to somebody and then suddenly I will have a very clear and almost intrusive memory that just clicks in my head and I'm like I can't believe I can't didn't remember that um 
And that's the case for, like, most of my life up to, like, middle school or even early high school. Um, and I can't ever place where they are on the timeline until I ask somebody. My dad has this fabulous ability to remember dates. So I always talk to him when I'm like, there was a, a memory I had recently where um, something on another podcast triggered. I couldn't remember what happened exactly, but I knew that I almost caused a church split because of voting age. And I had to get, I, I remembered a lot of the details over time. Like I, I figured them out, but then I, I had to ask my dad, you know, how old was I at this point in time? Thinking I was like six or seven and that's why they weren't letting me vote. And that would have made sense. But I was like 14 at the time. Um, and there was, the pastor had resigned and then asked to unresign basically. And my grandfather was leading the charge that no, you can't unresign. We're not going to, not going to go back on that. And so my grandpa got up in front of the church and he was going to have me vote and people started objecting and it ended up coming down to like two votes. Um, so if under the old rules, my sister and I both would have been old enough to vote and that would have made the difference. He would have been gone. And as it was, he stayed. And I believe my grandfather knew that the pastor's son was molesting me. And I think he was trying to protect me there, but I, I don't know that for sure. And I don't know that he even would have done anything if he had known, but I, I have the feeling because that's the timeline works out for that. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, let's see. What is, I don't have a whole lot of other questions for you. Um, what do you feel our listeners need to know about their own their own path through a high control religion um, and mental illnesses and neurodivergence. I think the base, the biggest thing that, that I think people should know is that there's hope out there. There are resources available. You're not losing everything when you walk away because as much as they want to make it sound like you are when you're inside out here, there is, a whole world of people that that are willing to love and accept you and for who you are and what you are and and what you do believe you know after you deconstruct and you figure out where you stand there are people who are out there to accept that and it's it's pretty fantastic once you find that place um as far as like neurodivergence and stuff even after coming out of that it takes time there's hope there's there's always hope, but it takes time to find something. And it's going to require a lot of patience to get on a road to recovery. Mm -hmm. But recovery is possible. It happens. And recovery is not a straight line either. You don't Never. You wall all over the place. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and not to be discouraging, but you're never, you never quite make it to the end, but you're always learning and improving and growing 
and there's always yeah. something to, to strive for and to search for in, in your, in your working toward being as healthy as possible. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, relapse is part of recovery, mm-hmm. you know, going back into those symptoms, that's part of recovery, you know, just like I don't judge someone who has an ankle that doesn't heal. I don't judge somebody who doesn't have a brain who doesn't heal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's no reason to judge anyone for anything, but especially for things that are out of your control. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Emery, I'm going to go ahead and bring this to a close. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening and coming and spending it with us. And oh, absolutely. Uh, you are welcome back on the podcast anytime. <laughs> we'll just have to come up with some with some good stuff to talk about on 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 the next one as well. This was this has been a lot of this has been a lot of meat, and you know I I just I want people who hear these stories to realize that they're not alone and that there is a way through. And uh, you've done an excellent job of of illustrating that for us, and I definitely appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. All right, well we're gonna draw this. Uh, this um, interview to a close and uh, thank you Emory for coming all right thank you for having me we want to thank Emory for being on the podcast tonight and again thank you so much for listening I hope this is helping um, I'm, I'm really trying to shed some light on people who have gone through high control religions high control upbringings and they're making it through. And even with neurodivergence making it that much harder, they're still getting through on the other side. And there is hope for everybody out there. It's all about making sure you improve yourself every day. If you need help, if you need anything, please reach out. Um, I am at Cricket Shea on Twitter, which I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on Twitter, but there you go. Um, uh, at Cricket Shea on uh, Instagram. I'm on Facebook. You can find me wherever you want to find me. Come, come friend me and let's talk. And uh, you can be on the podcast as well. But uh, we will see you guys next time. And thank you so much for joining.